Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So here we are a week away from Thanksgiving. And I have to tell you, gentlemen, I'm thankful for many things. And being serious for just a second, I am thankful for my friendship with both of you. The last eight, nine months working together has been an absolute pleasure. Danny Moses, Dan Nathan. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're welcome. I will say that rarely in life at this age, and we're all over 50, get to meet people, get along with and have some type of relationship with, and it's really been great to get to know you guys. So I mean that. So First of all, I appreciate that, but I'm not over 50. You guys don't look a day younger than 50, which is fine by me. Listen, this has been a lot of fun. We just got the opportunity to spend a couple days together down in sunny FLA, as the kids say, and that was great. It really feels like we're almost coming out of the other side of this stuff, and we have had a lot of fun making a lot of content over the course of 2021. So I'm also thankful for you guys and thankful for Amanda Diaz, who actually, as we've said, I think a lot over the last few days, she is the brains behind this operation. No question about it. Amanda was with us in Naples as well. We're going to talk about that later. You are listening to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. We are fresh off that plane from Naples, Florida, where we played a little golf. Well, Danny played a little golf along with our friend Ned Michaels and caught up with CME CEO Terry Duffy. More on that in a minute. Later, we're going off the tape with internet analyst the great Mark Mahaney, he's out with a new book, Nothing But Net. I think that speaks to his basketball prowess, but what do I know? But first, we have to talk about the markets because here we are, another week, another seemingly new all-time high. Listen, there's some things beneath the surface that are absolutely concerning, but here we are. Rates in the 10-year, 159, energy pulling back. Some of these names like NVIDIA off to the races for no apparent reason to me. I mean, NVIDIA is a name, by the way, that had gone from 200 in October to 300. I mean, I can do that math, Dan Nathan. That's a 50% move. They had to knock the cover off the ball in terms of earning this week to get the kind of move they're seeing. I didn't think it was a knock the cover off the ball, but it was good enough in this environment. That's the market we have right now, Dan. Yeah, I just think there's a lot of crowding into the best stories, and there's no low, low enough for the bad stories. And we've been talking about this over the last few weeks or so. As we are taping right now on Thursday afternoon, Apple's making a new all-time high. NVIDIA made a new all-time high earlier. It's up 9%. It was up more than that, gaining $70 billion in market cap. And then on the flip side of that, look at Alibaba. It's down 12% today. It's down 50% from its highs. And I think the list, and what were we calling this, a Niedermeyer market a few weeks ago, all the things that were dead. We were like, work from home, dead. School from home, dead. Work out from home, dead. Pin from home, dead. Gamble from home, dead. The list goes on and on and on, and they're just losing. And here's another one. I'll throw the Roku in here. Since July, when the stock was making a new all-time high, it's lost nearly 50% of its value. I see Robinhood is making new all-time lows here. I mean, the list of those names, of those prior sort of kind of sentiment winners, Peloton, obviously, I'll throw in there. They're just going away, and there's more reliance on these major names, and that is what's troubling to me. Yeah, I will say, looking at the retailers today, let's just pick a segment. Macy's and Kohl's, we've already seen that for the last few weeks. Retail sales are strong. We know they're strong. These companies have gotten their inventory management right. They've spent COVID probably rationalizing the business. They're just better at what they're doing. But that being said, We're not back to 2020 levels. We're back to 2019 levels in Macy's on the stock. This is not some type of reversion post-COVID. This is something different. I think those things are a little bit ahead of themselves. And to your point, what this market chooses to love and what it chooses to hate or punish, to me, is confounding at this point. Is Walmart sexy? No, but you know what? It's predictable. Maybe predictable is not great in a bubble market like this, but it will be there in time. I think you have many stocks you could pool together and say, all right, these will probably underperform over time and these other ones will outperform. So there is some quality stuff out there for sale on the market right now. And I think people need to discern and there's very little bottom-up work going and it's a dream the dream market still. And no question about it, Danny. I think you and I come down pretty similar in terms of our views. I think Dan is a bit more pragmatic, as they say, and he looks at this a bit differently. But I'll push back, Danny. I'll say, listen, 
regardless of what the two of us think, seasonality is in full-fledged form right now in terms of here we are a week before Thanksgiving. You get these melt-ups historically into the year-end. I mean, we're on the verge of that now. I think there are a lot of analysts that are just dying to put like a 5,200 price target on the S&P 500. Quite frankly, given what we've seen, that's not going to be all that crazy. We've talked before. If you're short and wrong on the sell side, you get fired. It doesn't pay to make a bold short call. I wouldn't call it melt-up. I would call this a volcano some form of fashion, some of these names that are out there. So listen, the market's up like 10 bips for the week or something, 20 basis points just on the S&P 500. But every day is a volatile day and you just don't know. Dream the dream stocks are working. If you can't quantify how many cars are going to be coming off factory production in 2024, that's a positive right now. And that to me smells bubble. So it's interesting. We saw Jimmy Buffett at, in down in the FLAS dance. I think that's Florida in Naples. And he sings that song. I don't know where I'm going to go when the volcano blows. Dan Nathan, where do you nice go one. if this friggin' volcano ever does blow? <laughs> well, that's the problem. You know, again, Apple, new all-time highs. Microsoft, new all-time highs. Alphabet, new all-time highs. NVIDIA, new all-time highs. I just think people are crowding in these same names and that will be the problem. And, you know, semis have caught a bid over the last couple of weeks, but I think some high valuation software that's not Microsoft is not acting particularly well. Look at your Disney guy. You were saying up at 180, it should not be there. You actually made a valuation case why it might be 140. Well, you know where it is right now? 155. It's not far from there. And there is just no support for some of these names. So I hate that expression. It's a stock picker's market. It is becoming that way. And at some point, if there is a reason to sell those mega cap tech names, then watch out below. Guy, you were saying that you think we're going to see 2% in the 10-year yield in the not so distant future. Well, rates don't get out of their own way right now. And if they were to go up, would that be the reason why people kind of start piling out of those tech names? Maybe, but the biggest peak to trough decline we've had in 2021 so far has been a little less than 6%, which seems pretty reasonable at this point. Danny, I just mentioned NVIDIA, the move we've seen since October. Again, the stock from 200 to 300. Again, you can do the math. In terms of market cap, Danny Moses, it's added $300 billion in market cap. For perspective, Disney has a market cap, I think, of about $285 billion. I look at that and say to myself, just doesn't make sense. The numbers don't work. But here we are. I'm raging against the machine every week. And I continue to see things that, to me, are problematic but again, the market just continues to look past it. You see that. What does that say to you? It just says it's unabated. And I think what you see is analysts on the sell side that don't want to downgrade stocks find an excuse or a reason. They start to pull forward. They go, okay, let's look at 2022 or 23 earnings or revenue to justify current valuation. So you're seeing the extended pretend go on. Multiple of EBITDA. Nope, let's not do that instead. Let's go to an adjusted EBITDA or let's go to multiple revenue. It's not just NVIDIA that it's happening. It's a good company, don't get me wrong, but it's like what people decide that they think is great and what sectors that they're involved in. So NVIDIA is in the right sectors. They are selling into the right industries, right? Whether it's crypto or computers or whatever, they're, where their chips are going, that's great. But when you do the math, if you actually do fundamental analysis on it, you can't get there. The growth rate that they would have to have to justify where the valuation is makes no sense, but neither do many other stocks. So this is an expectations game. And just back to NVIDIA for a second here, because if I'm looking at consensus estimates for NVIDIA 2023, that is the current fiscal year that they're basically going to be in right now, are calling for about high teens revenue and EPS growth. And the stock is trading about 62 times earnings and it's trading about 25 times sales. So again, 18% expected EPS growth in the current fiscal year and about 18% revenue growth. Now that earnings multiple and that sales multiple, okay, price to sales, they make no sense. You just can't justify it. So here's the deal. The consensus estimates, Wall Street is basically saying high teens percent. It's investors who are willing to pay this multiple, Danny. It's not on the company. They keep guiding and the analysts are well below what investors are expecting. And that's where I think you run the risk if there is any hiccup whatsoever. If investors think because they are selling chips that go into servers, they're going to be used in this metaverse thing, like that all of a sudden deserves a 25 times sales multiple. Well, that's stupid. And that's on them. 35 buys, five holes, one underweight and one sell. Do I see that correctly on NVIDIA? Yes. Okay. And let me say this. We've talked about this before. I don't care if you need cash or you don't need cash. It is irresponsible. You say, don't blame the management. I agree with you. You can't blame them. Go raise capital. I don't care if you need it or not. 
Then you would be admitting, obviously, maybe our stock shouldn't be here. But come on, good corporate governance would literally go out and raise $5 billion right now in cash coming. Yeah, well, look at Peloton this week. Do you see the offering that they did on their last call? Our friend Jim Chanos highlighted this. They actually were asked the question about capital raising. They said they don't need any. And the stock is trading down 60% or something from their recent highs just earlier this year. And they announced a huge offering. And you say to yourself, why is it so hard when things are so good to think out and do the thing that makes sense to kind of ensure your future existence in the markets? I don't know. I don't get it. Raise when you can, not when you have to. And of course, you're not going to tell the market if you put on the spot that you need capital because you're going to raise money because your stock would get dinged. So I don't blame them for that. I don't think they were being dishonest. I just think legally they didn't want to say anything. But look what's going on in China, right? With Evergrande. Basically, the cat's out of the bag that you have to keep selling assets and they keep selling assets. And S&P says that some type of default is likely. It's actually China's a more rational market now than we have, obviously, over here, the way some of these stocks act. So anyway. That's problematic. And just to tie a bow on this, a couple of strategist calls for 2022. Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, friend of ours, he sees the S&P 500 down to 4,400 next year. He also sees 10-year yields going to 2.1%. JP Morgan sees 5,000 early next year. UBS, I mentioned 5,200. Well, there you go. UBS says it can run as high as 5,200 over the next six months. They gave you the ABCs, the A being artificial intelligence, the B being big data, and their C being cybersecurity. We'll see. Danny, you're seeing something, though, that's concerning you in the currency world. I'm not looking to make people's eyes glaze over here, but I got to tell you something. Everything is built on currencies and the movement in currencies. And what's going on in Turkey, although nobody here seems to care, is fascinating, one, and extraordinarily problematic because it could portend some things happening in other countries as well. Yeah, it's not a huge market, but Turkish lira is getting destroyed here. I think it's down something like 30% over the last few months. And Erdogan, who runs the country, obviously, has basically fired three central bankers in the last three years. He's taken over. And what he's doing now is he's demanding that they cut rates. Well, the problem is there's tons of inflation. So you're starting to get a little bit of taste of what can happen. And when I say cut rates, they're 16% to 15%. We're not talking 190 basis points down to one and a half percent, obviously. So this is what can happen, obviously. Listen, I'm not going to compare. It makes our central bank look like the cream of the crop, obviously, when something like this is happening. But normally there is some add-on effect. And throw in the fact right now in Europe with the new lockdowns coming in, obviously, in Poland and Hungary and Germany on this, what they're calling the fourth round or the fourth wave here of a COVID outbreak, kind of sets up again for a little bit more volatility, certainly in Europe. So certainly something to keep an eye on there for sure. Apple's had a huge move this week. Maybe it's on the back of this autonomous car stuff. They're accelerating their program, Dan Nathan. I mean, everybody's geeked up about Apple. We did see an about 11% peak to trough decline recently in Apple. Now here we are at all-time highs. I mean, is this a reason to own Apple, Dan Nathan? Listen, I would say it is a reason to own the stock if you're a long-term bull and you think that this company can continue to iterate. If you think that having a billion and a half iOS devices on the planet is a great stepping stone to do other platforms, it makes perfect sense. I mean, we know that there's hardware capabilities that can be integrated into a car if it's going to be autonomy. We know that there's a lot of software capabilities. I don't know about you guys, Guy, you're still driving around in your 2002 Tahoe, but they have these pretty cool Apple CarPlay software that comes in a lot of different cars right now. So their software, their devices are becoming more and more integrated. We know that this whole concept, it feels like the metaverse has just totally destroyed that whole notion of, remember the internet of things that was the buzz phrase from a few years ago? IoT, baby. Is autonomy in vehicles going to be a huge thing for Apple in the next 10 to 20 years? I suspect, I don't know if there's anything you can put your finger on right now that tells you that the stock deserves to be at $158, up 3% on the day because of a couple of headlines. I actually drove my Tahoe to Newark Airport the other day. And, you know, in the top left hand, the mechanics put those little sticky things in, the things that adhere to your windshield, you know, your last service. On mine, the last service was April 2018. Think I got a problem there with that Tahoe? That thing runs like a friggin' top, Danny Moses. You know what else is running is these friggin' EV names. I mean, Rivian, Lucid. You got to look at things like this and say pre-sales, you're talking about a company now in Rivian. I think the market cap reached $140 billion, maybe higher. It's hard to keep track now with some of the moves. But when you see this, Danny, does it make your... Wait for it. Blood boil like it does to me. Well, I'll just start with Dan's comment on Apple. 
Dan, in the scheme of things, I would think it'd be up a lot more for the amount of value that's being given to EV companies, which have yet to produce anything. To your point, we know Apple is a competent company. We know that they can manufacture and produce things. They're slotting for 2025. But let's look at Lucid, who will be the nemesis of Tesla, since Peter Rollinson, the CEO there, is the one, if you guys remember, that kind of developed the Model S, or not kind of, but did develop the Model S. They have debuted the Airdream, and Motor Trend has called it the car of the year. So the market cap's getting hit today. The market cap's 70 billion. We've gone from 43 to 60 bucks back to 43. This thing was hanging in the high teens and 20s for months. And remember, this was a SPAC. This was Churchill's, I think, four SPAC or something. So it's a SPAC that at least has gone right. But there's so much going on in the EV sector as far as the market cap gains that really make no sense. Again, there's a capacity issue. There's a manufacturing. These things take time to grow. And here at Ford and GM, we talked about last week, who are getting the benefit, at least now, of some of this uptake and uplift in these names. But there's a reckoning coming for sure. And Rivian obviously has pulled back. We talked about that last week. But just add up the market cap people of the macro of this sector and then do the math and work your way back. I want to ask the question because I know the audience is listening to this. I'm sure some people out there think like I do. You just said there was a motor trend car of the year. Every friggin' car manufactured since 1980 has been the Motor Trend Car of the Year. I'm more interested in the friggin' cars that aren't named Car of the Year because it's a joke. Every ad you see on TV, every time you open a frickin' magazine, it's a Car of the Year. Explain that one to me, Danny. Explain it to me. I want to understand. Not my area of expertise, but I'm sure there's some marketing dollars that go towards the magazines with ads that goes a long way. I don't want to be too cynical about it, but Stock Picker of the Year, I mean... Some things are based on numbers and some are just, as we know, are based on marketing dollars. So, Dan, I'll let Dan comment on that. Dan, you break these things down extraordinarily well. I mean, you see Rivian talked about. It. I mean, pre-sales, $150 billion market cap company. Is this eerily reminiscent of, you know, 1998, 99? None of them came at, at valuations like that pre-revenue. I mean, what really is astounding is that I think we could have all made a case at $50 billion where one of the first S1s that came out about Rivian is like, oh yeah, I'd take a crack at that. You know what I mean? Like they're really going for a category where I think last year, 70% of the cars sold in the US were either pickup trucks or SUVs and Rivian is only going after that market right now. They just started rolling out some of these cars or making deliveries from them. And like, I think they have 100,000 EDV, that's a electric delivery vehicle order from Amazon, which also happens to own 20% of the company. So this company has orders for probably close to 200,000 cars. So to justify at $50 billion, you could have made the case if they're delivering 100,000 cars in the next couple of years, why that would make some sense here. I think also really important to note, Tesla right now has 19% of the global electric vehicle market share. You would have thought much higher, wouldn't you guys? And GM actually has very good market share because they sell a very low-end electric vehicle in China. I guess the point I would make with Tesla at about a trillion-dollar market cap here, it's not for them just to run away with this thing right now. When you think about all this competition that's coming on from upstarts like Lucid and Rivian, who have already been assigned these crazy valuations. And then when you think about Detroit, what they may do, and when you think about the competition that's going to be coming from the Germans and the Koreans and also the Chinese in China, it's not a layup. I mean, if anything, I'd much rather buy a basket of all these other names and short Tesla against it. Danny, am I speaking your language here, buddy? Yeah, I couldn't be happier with what's coming out of your mouth. But I will say this, are Goldman and JP Morgan that bad? Meaning they priced Rivian, obviously got upsized from kind of the initial 57 bucks up to $78 and they ended up raising $12 billion. So good for them. I don't begrudge Rivian at all. But there was a reason that they were coming out originally at that level, but the investor enthusiasm around EV. And again, I go back to Tesla. They paved the way for all of this. So certainly on a relative basis, maybe the valuations makes sense, but on absolute basis, the valuations make no sense to me. As I mentioned, we were just in Naples. We went to see Jimmy Buffett. We didn't go to a concert. He played at this event we were at, but there were some people puffing the magic freaking dragon, Danny. I don't know if you were one of them. I don't, I'm not interested, but I will tell you. I did not see it and I wasn't one of them. How about that? Well, I mentioned that because cannabis legislation is front and center once again, brother. Brady Cobb spoken about it. You talking about it. It is in the news, Danny Moses. All right. So what's happened in the last few weeks is you had a Republican congresswoman from South Carolina. Nancy Mace introduced the States Reform Act. It does similar to what the SAFE Act is going to do, except it's a lower excise tax and there's not really anything in there for social justice or any type of reform in that area. Similar to the SAFE Act, it gives the states the rights to kind of run their own cannabis program. So let's back up a little bit. 
the National Defense Authorization Act, right, which we know has to be passed every year. It's the one mandatory legislation that's passed. The House threw in the SAFE Act into it. So the Senate, it appears, what happened in the last few days is they have not included it in their version of the NDAA. However, they will now go to conference in the weeks following Thanksgiving, and there still is potential likelihood that Jack Reed actually heads the Senate Armed Services Committee. He's very pro this legislation. And Schumer and Booker are still hanging on that they want comprehensive reform. That's great, except I've told you this before. States are doing it themselves. There is so much reform going on on a state-by-state basis. This is overkill at this point, and we need to pass some legislation so that there's safe banking so employees can get paid. And you ask anyone in the industry, most people in Washington and anyone in the United States, they're all for this. So the stocks ran up on the belief that Mace's bill would get tracking. And like every other bill in Washington, and certainly any cannabis bill, it stalls for a while, and then they regroup and come through. So I think that the pressure is now on the Democrats, and the Republicans have stolen this issue from the Democrats. And I don't think Schumer can let this happen. So I really hope he smartens up. They include it when they go to conference, and that they put this back in. So when they pass the NDAA, we do get the SAFE Act passing through. So I just want to be clear on cannabis stocks in general. They've all pretty much reported earning to this point. Some decent, some shortfalls, some, but mostly okay. But let's be clear, these stocks aren't trading on fundamentals. They're, they're trading on the politics right now. So these stocks had a huge run-up into the bill being introduced by Nancy Mace this Monday. And so they ran up in the week knowing she was going to introduce this bill. There was an article that was leaked out there. And so if you look at these stocks, they're back to where they were, maybe even lower pre the run-up. And so again, Cannabis stocks get no love because they're not institutionally sponsored. They trade OTC on these U.S. names. And the MSOS, which took in hundreds of millions of dollars in new assets and new buys last week, I still think is sitting there probably with some cash to put to work. And so I'm a buyer here at these levels. If you want to just put me on the spot of just buy the MSOS, it represents six or seven of the large MSOs that are out there. And I buy it. I think the risk reward is favorable for something to get done. And God forbid it doesn't get into this NDAA and the SAFE Act doesn't pass. I think it'll be a first quarter event because the Democrats cannot afford to go into the midterms without doing something in this sector, in my opinion. Danny, the three things that caught your attention this week, in no particular order, Robin Hood and a judge, Elizabeth Warren looking at the fine print, and a J.P. Morgan bond deal. Talk to me. Yeah, so Robinhood and Citadel, I guess, were being sued by the meme stock community following what they believed was total collusion to stop trading GameStop and AMC and all those things and actually caused these stocks to have a buy strike, if you guys remember that. Now, I'm not going to opine on that at all. I think you know evidence probably speaks for itself. But there was a quote from the judge, which I think warrants at least talking about. The request from a market maker to limit order flow sent to it is not equivalent to a demand to restrict trading. Well, guess what, judge? It is when you sell all of your order flow to one person and you have no other way to trade these stocks if you're on the Robinhood platform. So that's factually incorrect. So whether that was a reason for going, I would actually appeal if I was the person that is open to appeal and say, that's just not possible. I don't think the judge truly understands the plumbing. So that was the one thing that I noticed. The second thing I noticed, anytime Liz Warren speaks, you think something's bad going to happen on Wall Street. So I always like to look at it and see what it was. This is interesting. So people should realize on SPACs, one of the biggest rules in SPACs, and they're allowed to do certain things, give forecasts that other IPOs can and so forth, is a SPAC that's being IPO'd or a SPAC that's being originated cannot identify a target until after the deal has occurred. Well, this DWAC, if you remember, went public on September 3rd. And then they announced the deal in mid-October, I guess, that they were going to combine with Trump Media. That's fine. Except there's a New York Times article that Liz Warren referenced, which cites talks were going on between the two parties in March. If that's the case, that would literally be a massive red flag. So she's asked the SEC to look at this. I'm not calling this out particularly for the deal itself, but I think people need to realize the SPAC market, obviously, people are watching, you know, regulators are watching you use something like this. This will be hard for this not to come up and this be an issue. And I'll say this, this SPAC could unwind completely and Trump could still IPO at some point. If he wants to go build a social business or whatever he wants to do in social media, fine. He didn't really need them to do it, but it'll be interesting to see how this thing unfolds. And the third thing that I saw is that J.P. Morgan was removed in Louisiana from a muni bond deal because of their stance on guns. And so I guess there was some fiery meeting that took place, but the state bond commission voted to have Wells Fargo replace J.P. Morgan because J.P. Morgan would not answer the qualifying question of whether or not they want to finance manufacture of military-style weapons for civilian use. And because J.P. Morgan didn't answer yes or no on that, they were removed. So I think you're seeing, again, the woke stuff and start to spill itself out to real deal. Is that great? For the taxpayer in Louisiana that you could potentially get 
lower underwriting sponsorship, lower banker sponsorship. What does that mean going forward? So I thought that was pretty interesting. So those are the three things I guess I was watching this week. This was a week where you got your mojo back, the league where they play for pay. What do you got for me? So there are some really good games on the board, like high quality matchups, right? Packers, Vikings, Cowboys, Chiefs, whatever. There are some also really bad games out there. I normally don't even like to even go near bad teams, whether they're the favorite or the underdog. So I'm going to try to avoid those ones. So my first pick are the Eagles laying two against the Saints at home. Yes, Alvin Kamara is back. He'll be in the backfield, but there's tons of injuries the Saints have, both on the offensive line and the D-line. And I'm not sold on Simeon. And the Eagles are starting to gel. They have the best running game in football right now. So laying two at home, Philly. Trevor Simeon, welcome to the link. I think it'll be a rude awakening. I like the Eagles. So there's three other games I'm looking at, but I'm going to pick one of the three. I'm going to mention all three only because Dan's hanging around here. He's going to come out with me for something. So I want to get in front of that. So the Bills minus seven against the Colts. That's just too hard. Frank Wright coming back in there. Colts are playing pretty well. I don't want to touch that game either way. I could see that game go either way. So I'm going to pass on that one. The Cowboys Chiefs. Cowboys getting two and a half. Seems right, doesn't it? A little too inconsistent for me. Chiefs might be gelling, so I'm going to avoid that one. But the one I like is the Vikings. And let me tell you exactly how we would play this. So the Vikings are getting two and a half points at home against the Packers. Aaron Rodgers obviously has another week back. He'll be fine. I'm not really worried. But the Vikings have been in every game, three overtime games this year. There's something you can do. Dan would know about this guy. You would. You can buy a half point and pay a little bit more vig to the bookie by doing it. I think this game is going to be really close. And I am not going to sit there with two and a half points. So I am taking the Vikings plus three, which you must lay now 130 to win 100 instead of the normal 110 that goes to the bookman. So buy the half point, take the Vikings plus three. My two picks then, Eagles minus two. Vikings plus three. I think the Vikings went outright, to be honest with you. Dan, Nathan, you heard those picks. You know where you stand. What do you like? What don't you like? All right. I want to take New Orleans at Philadelphia getting two points. What am I down to you right now? And listen, I'm working with somebody here. My buddy James, okay? Oh, James. Um, this is this is why. Uh, you better watch out. James is coming James, for you. James, otherwise known as the new Jimmy the Greek. But when you're done with him, he'll don't be the Don't worry geek. about him. We've done two in a row versus you. Okay? No, you have this is, this is your official pick. This is your official pick. I want all 1,500 on this. Let's do it. Let's just get this over with. We can call it a day. Double or nothing, you're done. Double or nothing. I'm getting two points. Danny, there's a reason why you're feeling it, and that's because, as we've mentioned a couple times, we were just in Naples, Florida. We played it. Well, we played. You and Ned Michaels played in the Pro-Am on Wednesday. Not only did you play, you emerged victorious. Minus 19. I think the next closest foursome was minus 17. Talk to me about that experience. That was pretty cool. There weren't many spectators that weren't allowed there, which made the pressure a little bit less. So I didn't have to worry about hitting people off the tee. But I did hit a ball that will probably go down, at least in Soyan Ru's life, is something she told me she's never seen. I hit a ball off the tee on hole number 10, which, by the way, she birdied today, so the curse is broken. We're okay there. And I kind of sliced it because two people I was playing with, including Ned, had already driven the ball 300 yards down the middle. So I was just free swinging, which is never good for me. Hit a tree, went in the air, hit another tree, and came back and rolled right in front of us, literally maybe five, six feet from where I had teed off just moments ago. And it was silence and then laughing obviously came out from there. And at one point she said to me, you're not really good at golf, but you're so entertaining by the end of the 18 holes that we had played together. But we had a great time. I played okay. It was fun to win. And obviously we took down Terry, who I know was coming on here in a bit. We felt bad. We thought there were going to be hitmen out there from Chicago in the trees that were going to emerge. So it was a great day. And I got to tell you, what an event, the charity that they give and the purse money that's now growing in women's golf. And it should be. It was $5 million this year for this tournament, a million and a half to the winner. I guess Terry announced during the tournament, $7 million next year and $2 million to the winner. Women's swings are 10 times better than any of the men's that are out there. And just go watch them swing. It's amazing. So had a great day for a great cause. And thanks for letting me take your spot there, guy. You could stand on a tee box for 50 years and not accomplish what you did. You hit the ball 70 yards, ricocheted off two trees, and that said ball found its way back to the tee box. I can't believe anybody in their life has ever seen anything like that. <laughs> oh, if you play with me long enough, you see a lot of weird shit. So. Well, it was a great weekend. As you mentioned, by winning, you were awarded $5,000 to a charity, went to St. Jude's. Dan chose to match that with another 5000 from Risk Reversal Media. It goes to a great cause. We're going to speak to Terry Duffy in a minute about this. Dan, talk to me quickly. Yeah, great couple days of there. Hats off to CME Group and obviously Terry Duffy. And we were very fortunate to talk to Terry again twice in about a month or so. And what an event that they put on down there. And Risk Versal Media is very happy to give to St. Jude's Charity. So thanks again for them. 
When we come back, CME Group CEO Terry Duffy and later Internet Analyst Mark Mahaney. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. So we're down here at the Ritz-Carlton in Naples. I'm here with, obviously, Dan Nathan, our crack producer, Amanda Diaz. Danny Moses is here, but he's playing a round of golf with Ned Michaels. But we're thrilled to be here because we're with the great Terry Duffy. Terry, how are you? I am doing fine, Guy. Thank you for being here. I thank you and Dan and the big short. I appreciate him being out on my golf course, having a grand old time. And as you said, thank God Amanda's here to keep this thing in Absolutely. And Anita's here as well. But... Tell us why we're here. This is really important. I mean, this is a wonderful venue. It's an incredible couple days, but there's a reason, there are a couple reasons why we're all down here. Yeah, you're right, Guy. There are several reasons. And, you know, obviously I just did the show with you and Dan and Melissa on Fast Money. We talked about the Google deal and forgive my voice. What's important now is we've had a couple weeks for clients to give us some feedback. My employee base who knew nothing about this to give some feedback of what they see. And it's been absolutely positive from all aspects. You know, you think about single points of connectivity going forward. What does that mean for me? So the big banks, they go, this could really free up a lot of costs for me. The big proprietary traders were thinking, well, maybe this is not good for me. Maybe they, Now they're going, hey, maybe we can free up a bunch of capital. So there's a lot of people now looking at this deal versus ways CME and other exchanges are set up today with proprietary technology to be into the Google Cloud, and people are now evaluating it, what it means for them. So a lot of positive stuff. Yeah, it seemed like at the time, Terry, when you guys made this announcement, first of all, this was not a kind of off-the-cuff thing. It means something that you've been working on, a huge strategic initiative. And I think some of the things that I heard when you were on Fast Money a couple of weeks talking about it, it really is democratizing trading of the futures market. And you guys have been first in so many different areas this is really taking it the next step here. This is like the next generation of trading. And it's not just for the big institutions, which you said some of those prop traders might've been a bit skeptical, but it's for everyone who are trading in these markets. So first of all, Dan, you know this, and Guy, you know this as well. We could trade with each other for about three minutes, and then one of us will have the money and the other two will go home. So in order to have a successful marketplace, so people that are producers of all different products can have risk management, you have to have more participants. And the more market makers you have, the more clears you have, the bigger it is, the better it is for everybody. Because that's what really cheapens up cost. You don't ever want to have four or five big market maker participants, and that's the end of the game. Because now they can dictate to the end user clients what their spreads are going to look like. You want people competing for the guy that's producing corn, for the guy that's producing wheat, for the guy that's writing mortgages. You want to make sure he has a good risk offset and a powerful bid offer from multiple parties. I always have said that bilateral transactions are good, but who's to determine that price? It'd be you and me, Dan, determining a bilateral transaction. In my world, I want to have hundreds of people competing to give the producer a better price every single time. And that's what Google Deal will do for me. It'll allow me to have more and more participants making markets and using markets for risk management. What does it mean to have a partnership with a company like Google? My sense is the credibility that creates for a company like yours that already has tremendous credibility. I mean, that's just the leverage effect, I guess, the multiple of that. It's not just one plus one equals two, I would think. For sure, Guy, you're absolutely right. And, you know, for me, I think you look at CME's 180-year-old company. You know, I've been fortunate to be there for 41 years, and I took the company public in 02. I took over at the CEO role in 2016, and we've done a lot of interesting things. So when you look at where the world's at today, you look at a Google, and Google is fresh, exciting, and new. And you think about a marriage between a Google and a CME, that's really compelling and exciting for the participants, because now you're not doing an old school deal with an old school deal, you are actually taking the latest, greatest of technology and bringing it to an exchange that's been established for 180 years and growing. So I think it's really, to me, 
I'm finally starting to get my arms around it. Even though I've been working it for a year and a half, I've been living and breathing it every single day. But once I looked at the announcement myself, I go, wow, this, this is changing the world. So Terry, when you were on Fast Money a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Google deal here. One of the really important tenants that we didn't spend enough time on, I think was the relationship with Google Cloud and their cyber capabilities and what that means for your business. Great question, Dan. And I will tell you that my team, when we start looking with Google about all the different products and services that they were going to be able to offer us at CME. One of the things I was really laser focused on is cyber. And why is that? Well, because we're all focused on it right now. It's, it's just, it's a beast. It's hard to keep up with, but you have to keep feeding it because it's critically important to any infrastructure of any organization. When I had an opportunity to work with my tech people to see what Google's cybersecurity platforms looked like, I felt so much better and confident that the future of CME and the protection thereof because of that infrastructure was probably light years ahead of mine. And I thought I had a good one. So when I look at other industries, you know, I'm not promoting Google or AWS or anybody else, but I will say you need to get under a bigger umbrella when it comes to cyber, because this is a serious issue. And we need to make sure that we protect the participants that are in the marketplace. And I am extremely confident that Google invests as much as I've seen anybody invest in cyber and their procedures and protocols, in my opinion, are second to none. So I appreciate you bringing that up today because that was a big part of my decision making. One of the things, obviously, that what the exchange was built on are interest rates. And it's fascinating that finally it appears as though our Federal Reserve, I don't want to say they've thrown in the towel. I think they've conceded that maybe this inflation problem is more than they anticipated, which really plays into your sweet spot at CME. Can you speak to that? That's our core business, right? You have to be able to manage risk. And when you have mixed messages coming out from a whole host of people, so we could talk about the medical profession with the pandemic and all the mixed messages that caused globally and what the effect of that was on markets as well as more importantly on, on human beings. So now you look at the Federal Reserve and the mixed messages that were coming out of there, transitory, transitory, transitory. Well, I, I agree it's transitory, but transitory is defined in the eye of the beholder. So this is a little bit longer than transitory. And I think the Fed is starting to understand that. And when you have such an overheated economy that you don't know how to control, and I'll tell you why I say that, we're all former traders. When we were traders, there was two equations to every trade, supply and demand. And you always could, you could look at the pile and say, that's my supply. I know what it is. I'm not sure what the demand is. That was always the toughest thing to figure out about any trade you ever made in your life. Today, that's flipped. And no one knows how to figure that equation out. I don't know what the supply is anymore. I always knew the supply number. I know the demand, it's off the charts, but I don't know what the supply is. And I think the Fed never realized that. And I think that's, unfortunately, they're going to be in a situation where we're going to have to act and act quickly. And we talk about that a lot on the show. We're obviously down here for another reason. The LPGA event, I want you to talk to that. I want you to talk to the importance of sponsoring that event and what it means, because it's really important. I think the purse for this event is $5 million, which is remarkable. There's also a charity component about this as well that I'd love you to talk about. Yeah, and that's the most important component of it. All the charitable dollars go to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, where no parent ever gets a bill for their child that's sick, and nor should they. It's a marvelous organization, and we have partnered up with them over the last several years. We've given them several million dollars from this event each and every year. I have Jimmy Buffett coming tonight that's putting on a charity concert. All the proceeds are going to St. Jude Children's Hospital. And for me, that's really what it's all about. And the LPGA, I'm a huge believer in equality. I have a very diverse workforce. I even have a more diverse customer base. So I believe equal pay equal for everybody. So I wanted to do something for the LPGA and I wanted, you know, I can't compete with FedEx. You know, they're paying, you know, $20 million purse. But, you know, you mentioned my my purse at $5 million. Well, today I'm raising it to seven and I'm going to pay the winner $2 million and I'm going to pay last place $40,000, which will be the highest price for a last place finish in a golf event for women. So we're changing the game every single day with this. And the greatest confirmation I got, it doesn't matter what you think of the person, but Billie Jean King, who I don't know, sent me a text, a tweet, whatever the hell she said, I don't know, good at my stuff, and said, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing for equality. And I thought to myself, I signed a Google deal, which made my skin tingle. 
And then when I got a tweet from a lady like Billie Jean King, who said, you know what, what you're doing is making a difference. And what you're doing for the kids, making a difference. That goes a long way in just more than dollars and cents. Which is why I've said for years that one of the great CEOs in this country is Terry Duffy from CME Group. You're playing golf in a few minutes. Give me a number. I mean, are we either side of 85 or do you don't want to go down that route? 85. That's what I said. Are you playing? <laughs> 85. I haven't shot 85 since I've been 12. I mean, come on, guy. No, it's a scramble format, so everybody gets to participate. So your score is uh, par as your friend, so you, you don't have to worry about it. Even you could play in this event, guy. All you have to do is put a pair of knickers on, a loud shirt, and uh, we'll give you a putter. And that's all you need to do. We are thrilled to be here, Terry. It's been a great 24 hours since we got down. We look forward to this evening. You're such a gentleman with your time. We look forward to seeing you. I think you're going to be on Fast Money with us later this evening. I look forward to it. Well, I look forward to it as well. Let me just say it for you, Dan, and the guy on the golf course, your other guy. I appreciate what you guys are doing. I think you guys are changing a lot how people are going, getting their information. And I think that's going to continue. So good luck with the, on the tape. I'm, I'm a big fan, big supporter, as you know. And I think the world of both of you. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Terry. Thanks, Terry. When we come back, internet analyst and author of the new book, Nothing But Net, Mark Mahaney. Hey, it's Dan here. I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast from Risk Social Media called Breaking Even with former golf pro Ned Michaels. We cover everything from golf to real estate, options trading, and sports betting. Each week, Ned is joined by some of the biggest names in golf and sports handicapper, Jonathan Coachman. Guy Danny and I drop by to attempt to fix Ned's swing at the markets. New episodes drop every Thursday, so follow it in your favorite podcast store and don't forget to leave us a review. Mark Mahaney is head of internet research at Evercore ISI. He's been covering internet stocks for more than two decades, has been ranked one of the top internet analysts by Institutional Investor Magazine for the last 15 years. He's also the author of the new book, Nothing But Net, 10 Timeless Stock Picking Lessons from one of Wall Street's top tech analysts. We are thrilled. Listen. There's like, what do I call when people on the top of the, the, the Parthenon there, Dan you, Nathan? You say they're on up Parthenon. on the, the, the Pantheon. Well, the this Parthenon. cat's on the Parthenon, Mark <laughs> Mahaney. Now, you know I'm a huge fan. I was a fan prior to Fast Money, during Fast Money. Your career is storied. But I have a question for you, Mr. Mahaney. Is it more difficult to be an internet analyst in today's world or raise four, four boys? You, let me hear it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you which is more important. I'm not sure which is more difficult, but I'll tell you which one is more important, and that's raising four kids, of course. That is a fact. That is a fact. And I got to tell you something. Everything else sort of pales in comparison, and especially in today's world where we get pulled in so many different directions. Raising four boys out there in California must be interesting, to say the least. Yeah, it is interesting, and there's nothing more rewarding as a parent, which I'm sure you know. So nothing better. And so that's why the book is uh, in part dedicated to them. They're the first dedication in there. Well, Mark, you and I go way back, and I love it that your book really does start out at just the start of the internet age. And the internet is a term that we don't really use that much anymore. You know, you have internet coverage, but when you think about your coverage, the industries in which it really touches and spans, you know, at the time, it really was an on-ramp to the World Wide Web. You know, in the late 90s. And I remember meeting you for the first time. You and I used to chat a lot. You were working for famed internet analysts. And she was already famed in 1998 when you started at Morgan Stanley with Mary Meeker. And you were doing all the legwork on all of these names. You had a front row seat for it. And this is really how this book starts. Tell us a little bit about that period and how you stuck with the internet for all of these years. Because I think you're the longest running internet analyst on Wall Street. I'm the oldest and longest lasting internet analyst on Wall Street. And that's mostly because of attrition. A lot of people have moved on. So I don't know whether that's my fault or theirs, but it is the truth. And Dan, yes, you and I did meet in 1998. So we've been running at this for, uh, you know, for almost 25 years now. And it's been fascinating. I guess if you were going to be an analyst for the last, you know, 25 years, I mean, if you were going to pick the best, most interesting sectors to be in. You would have picked internet and probably software. Maybe there's something else out there. I don't know. But but those, so I, I feel lucky one that been placed there. And then lucky also to work with somebody who I think is a real visionary. Like you don't think about analysts on Wall Street. Probably the last word that comes to mind is visionary when you think about analysts on Wall Street. But Mary was and her 
recognition early on that I think just like with her recognition on Microsoft, there'd be a PC on every desktop that everybody would use the internet. And she was thinking this, you know, in the mid nineties. So hats off to her. And I learned a lot from just being around her that first Friday. One of my favorite stories that first Friday I was on Wall Street, got this call from a guy named Gary Benger, CFO of this online auction company. They sell Pez dispensers. Would Morgan Stanley be interested in talking with him? Well, that was eBay. And so I wasn't there at the, at the beginning of the internet. You know, that's Al Gore. But I was there kind of early on in the, in the development of the commercial internet. And I just got lucky. And it was just fascinating. And for the first couple of years, as you know, we had the dot-com boom and everybody felt, I felt like a genius. Then we had the bust. I felt like an idiot. And the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And anyway, over time, you've seen these wonderful business models for the most part, but there's been some spectacular failures too. And in the book, I try to draw lessons from both the big winners and from the losers and help people try to find the next Amazon, the next Netflix. Yeah, you were not shy about, this was not just about Mark Mahaney's greatest hits here. There was plenty of the best examples. And I think Guy would agree from an investing and a trading standpoint, we probably learn more about our losers than we do uh, our winners. And I want to say this, nothing but net, which just came out the last couple of weeks. Like I said, I've been reading it. I feel like I had a front row seat for all of these examples that you were giving and Guy did. And we've had the benefit of you coming on CNBC. It feels like now for almost 20 years, you know, talking about these. I will tell you this, this book, we have a young gentleman who just joined Risk Reversal Media. He's he's working as a, a research assistant with Guy and Amanda and myself here. This book, I, we gave him a whole list of books that we wanted him to read. This is going to be the most important. And I'm saying that to you right now because it's really relevant. It's relevant to the way investing has changed in technology in particular. And so you go through a bunch of lessons here. Can we talk about a couple of those lessons? And I'd love for Guy to kind of weigh in here a little bit on some of those. And the first one, we just were joking off camera, is don't play quarters, right? Don't play quarters. And what does that mean? Like, explain that to our audience a little bit because investing is very different than trading and trading a quarter is really a fool's errand. I think it is, especially for retail investors. I try to make the point, look, one of the things I've learned is that, I mean, I'm a fundamentalist at heart. I kind of think the stocks follow fundamentals and that's the lesson from the internet space. The bigger companies got, the bigger their stock, the higher their stock prices went. I know that sounds damn simplistic, but it's true. And so over the long term, you know, fundamentals are what drive stocks. When it comes to the quarters, yeah, fundamentals matter, but there's two games you're playing when it comes, and there are games. There's the, you got to get the numbers right, and then you got to get the expectations right. And if you're not in day-to-day in these stocks, and you're not close to what the hedge funds and the long-only funds are really thinking about and where the real whisper numbers are, then you're just completely guessing on a quarter and you'll get faked out of sometimes companies can get their fundamentals can improve, but the stocks can go down. And if you're long the stock for the quarter, you'll sell the stock and then look back at it a few months later and realize the stock's higher and you, you should have stuck with it. So one of the things I actually look for, I mean, I think quarters, because there's so much volatility, can be great opportunities. I love what I call expectations correct. So if stocks miss numbers and revenue growth sharply decelerates like a Peloton and their major gross margin issues, okay, that's a fundamentals correction and you don't want to be near that at least not on the long side. But when you have a case where fundamentals improve just not by as much as the market really wanted, well, that's an expectations correction. And you generally make money buying those expectations corrections. And so I'm actually saying in a way, you can play quarters, just you know, realize whether you have an expectations or a fundamentals correction, but step back, you could have made a lot more money in the space and slept better at night if you had just isolated your focus on the highest quality names and just use dislocations in the stock to add to positions or to, or to begin in uh, positions in those. And if you find the right high quality assets, there's always going to be dislocations in stocks from time to time. But stick with the high quality assets, add to them on dislocations. And for me, it all came down to this acronym, which I try to get through in the book, not DQ, that's Dairy Queen, but DHQ, dislocated high quality companies. I'll take DQ for 500, please, Alex, because I got to tell you something, those burgers there are just banging. And I have to apologize, Mark, because I think to a certain extent, when our show is now 15 years in, if we make it to January, I think we've made your job infinitely more difficult. You'd say, don't play quarters. Well, we're playing nickels because we're trying to talk about things you know, that move in five, 10 minute increments. You come on the show, we're pressing you for where's it going. And you obviously have a much longer term view. How difficult has it been to do your job to come on television in a world that is now looking for immediacy 
in your world that's looking six, nine, 12 months ahead? Guy, there, you're right. There is a conflict there. There's a, I don't know if it's a conflict. Sometimes it's a conflict. Sometimes it's just a challenge. And I'm talking about for retail investors. You know, you really want to avoid playing quarters. For institutional investors, this is a different matter. And you do need to make decisions about if you like a stock, whether you want to be buying it before or after the quarter, you know, because you want to buy low. And so it's a different set of issues. And so I do have to, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about how the stocks are going to trade through quarters. But again, that's, you have to know expectations and you have to know fundamentals. And if you're not in the stocks day in and day out and not in a network, you know, you just are not going to have a sense of the expectations. And that's why playing quarters is so dangerous and tricky. And I just don't think it's a smart move for retail investors, individual investors. So you talk about this and it is a theme throughout the book. So it's dislocated high quality names. And so volatility in tech stocks is in specifically in internet over the last 20 years or so has been a feature, not a bug. How do you determine, okay, when you're having a fundamental shift, when you have one of these dislocations, Mark, you know, you know, because I'm sure, and you give some examples in the book where they've been great buying opportunities, but in some instances, it was an inflection point. It was a change in the fundamentals and you were late. And I don't mean you in particular, but investors were late to understand that. How do you, as you think about this now, over 25 years. How do you decipher the difference? Dan, I want to stick with the first part, which is, you know, how do you figure out what the highest quality assets are? And then I'll peel back to maybe fundamentals and expectations again. But for me, as I thought through the companies that really did astoundingly well, and, you know, this group contained the best performing stock in the S&P 500 for 10 years. That was Priceline, 05 to 15. And the best performing stock in the S&P 500 from 2010 to 20, that was Netflix. And you can pick different parts along the way, kind of cherry picking a little bit. But those were big, broad plays, stocks that really outperformed for dramatic periods of time. And what were some of the common denominators? One, it's TAMs, large TAMs, total addressable markets. You ideally want to find these companies that have got a single digit percentage share of a really large market. I love TTAMs, trillion dollar TAMs. You want companies that can pull a Google, which is to grow 20% from scale for a decade. That's a very hard thing to do, by the way. And only if you have a small single digit percentage of a really large TAM can you do it. Secondly, I look for companies that are just exceptionally good at product innovation. We're all consumers. A lot of this innovation has really occurred in the consumer space. You want to know how good Netflix is? Spend $8 a month or $9 a month and decide for yourself whether you think it's a good value proposition. Also, decide whether you would tolerate a price increase and whether you think consumers would. Like, There's ways we as, a, we as consumers can figure out whether there's really a compelling value proposition. That's the second thing I look for. Third, this example of great product innovation. I think about Amazon. Guy, Dan, both of you watched Amazon for two decades. When when did Amazon go from being a speculative investment, because it certainly was, to being this should be a core part of anybody's tech long portfolio? I would argue that happened like 2006, 2007, somewhere in there when this AWS thing came out and they were successful with Kindles. Kindles aren't huge, but you know, you had an online book retailer that was all of a sudden getting into enterprise cloud and they were also building devices and successfully that, you know, second, third iteration of the Kindle. Like that should have said something about there's something in the water in Seattle or with that management team that allows them to succeed with product innovation in multiple markets. So you look for those signs of really great product innovation because if companies can do it a couple of times, that means they can probably do it a couple of times more. And then the last thing I, I look for are these signs of a great management team. And I know that's a really hard thing to figure out what's a great management team. I'll just throw out one example, and that's industry vision. I love Netflix. Netflix was founded in 1997. The name conjured up kind of streaming over the internet. But Reed Hastings knew that you wouldn't be able to stream for about a decade after he founded it. It would have taken you four hours to download the first five minutes of Terminator if you had tried to do that back when they launched Netflix. But that kind of industry vision, and a decade later, yeah, we're all streaming. And by the way, he cannibalized his own DVD business. Very few executives are willing to do that. Very few. Disney just did this recently, but that's a rare example. So anyway, I just those kind of four factors, the TAMs, the product innovation, the outstanding customer value proposition, which a lot of us consumers can figure out ourselves. And then these tells of great management teams. You pull that together, and that allows you to find companies that can really sustain this premium revenue growth, 20% plus revenue growth for a long time. And markets pay up for that kind of growth. And those can be great stocks. Wait a second. You're telling me it doesn't take four hours to download a movie? <laughs> what, what, what am I missing here? Guys, still I mean, on clearly his AOL I'm dial wrong. up here, Mark. I mean, it's- yeah, clearly. You know, you mentioned Reed Hastings, and I talk about this on the show for you. I, not a lot of people have talked about this. Personally, I don't think he gets the respect he deserves. I mean, I think he's one of the great visionaries 
of the 21st century in terms of what he's done for Netflix. I would submit, with the exception of one misstep, maybe five or six years ago when they out of nowhere raised prices, he's done everything exactly right. Can you speak to what the genius, and I'm using that word, of Reed Hastings, exactly what he's done at Netflix? Yeah. So let's see. Who did this guy beat along the way? Okay. Blockbuster, Walmart, Amazon. That's pretty good. And, you know, maybe Disney too. Like he's taken out three of the biggest companies in the world. So, you know, kudos to him, you know, for doing that. And I think he's done, you know, DVD by me. I can't remember if he invented it. I did go back to see who had invented streaming and it's the guy who invented Muzak. So just, you know, just so we're clear here, that was not Reed Hastings. He didn't invent streaming, but he certainly invented the commercialization of video streaming. So to his credit. So he's kind of seen two or three major pivots in markets, DVD, streaming and then the and then the big betty put on original content so he's kind of had three really good calls the next call that's up in the air now is gaming whether netflix really becomes a major gaming vendor and everybody in the market thinks he's got no chance of doing it but wait this guy's done this thing you know pulled this trick off three times so i'm going to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt I also like the fact that very long-term oriented uh, investor, and he's also got a very unusual culture at uh, Netflix, a wide open culture. I don't know whether that works for a lot of companies. It's certainly worked pretty well for, for Netflix. So yeah, my, uh, you're, you're right. He doesn't get the attention that a Bezos get, a Jobs gets, Satya Nadella gets at Microsoft, but he probably should. And his, the way he's played his hand against you know, three of the biggest corporate you know, giants in, in the world, that's truly impressive. You know, Mark, you just mentioned that period in the mid-2000s where that was the inflection point for Amazon, and it was AWS, but it also became a pillar of the bear case. And you know that bear case because you probably used to have your phone light up like a Christmas tree, right, before and after each quarter, and you had investor after investor, usually hedge fund investors, just trying to kind of convince you of their thought process about it. But let's take a step back. Amazon sold off, what, 90%, and you talk about it in your book, from its 2000 highs to its lows in 2002. And then it sold off 65% from its highs in 2007 to its lows, let's say, in late 2008, early 2009. You remain an optimist. You made your bets on a few of these stories, right? How you view the internet, and you really never got off the train. Isn't that correct? And when you think about when when that stock had those sorts of sell-offs, the market cap was minuscule to where it is right now at $1.7 trillion. How have you remained so optimistic on a handful of the stories that are the winners? So web one, web two, and who knows for web three? You know, I guess you get back to this dependence on fundamentals. And so one of the things I, I talk about in the book is the 20% rule. And when these companies can sustain 20% revenue from scale, you know, that's rare and the market does pay up for that. And so Amazon was able to do that and is still able to do that. And Netflix was able to do that. You know, like the leading indicator for Netflix's stock wasn't free cash flow because that got worse and worse for a decade. It wasn't earnings because that multiple was monstrously high. But it was the fact that revenue growth for the streaming business stayed at 35% for something like seven straight years. Like you just don't see that. I mean, that's just extremely rare. So as long as the fundamentals stayed largely intact, I thought those stocks would keep rising. Now, I'm to give you the opposite example in the book about Priceline. Wonderful stock for a decade. It had like 40% revenue growth, you know, year in, year out. Like that's almost unheard of. But then eventually the, the, the revenue growth started to fade and the stock started to kind of fade too, or it traded in line with the market. And to me, that's when that revenue growth came clearly below 20%. So I do look for those tells. And so the same thing is going to happen to Netflix. By the way, Netflix is close to that point of kind of going permanently below 20% revenue growth. And that's fine. The stock can do well. It just won't dramatically outperform in the way it has in the past. So that was, to me, the tell. There's so much noise around the stocks, but if you just focus on a couple of the key fundamentals, that consistency at the top line revenue growth, if you can sustain 20% revenue growth, You may get overvalued from time to time, undervalued, but long term, that stock is almost certainly going to go up. You stick with it until you see that growth rate really come materially below premium levels, until you see it crack well below 20%. You mentioned you got to call it Morgan Stanley, some guy hocking Pez dispensers. By the way, nobody likes the candy in the springs break, and the whole thing is just fugazi to me. I don't know. People collect that shit, not me. With that said, you must get a lot of calls. How do you choose the names you're going to cover. I'm fascinated by it because think about this universe of stocks you can cover. You can't cover them all. So there has to be decisions like you make trading decisions. As an analyst, you have to decide 
who, what company you're going to cover? Well, you start somewhere and you, if you're going to cover internet, there's, there's a couple of core franchises. You can't be an internet analyst and not cover Google, Facebook, Amazon, maybe get away with not covering Netflix. But I also have a personal bias for these, what I call consumer front end companies, in part because, you know, if they sell services directly to consumers, then you can survey a lot of consumers. And that's what I did over the years. I just, you know, consistently ran surveys on Netflix, on Amazon, and just, you know, one survey is useless, but you do it over multiple years and you see trends. So I, you know, I have a bias for companies that are consumer front end that because they're easier for me to track and they're easier to, to survey. So I tend to do less stuff in the enterprise space precisely because of that. And then, yeah, I think, you know, there's certain names you've got to cover just because of their market cap. And then after that, I just, I look for these, some of these really kind of interesting outlier ideas. Oh, a stock I like recently is Duolingo. It's an app for learning languages. I just thought that they just took a really, you know, kind of a necessary task for a lot of people. You want to change people's future economic income stream in international markets, help them learn English. That'll just change your long-term income. So I just thought it was, and I thought it was a really, it was a founder-led company, guy who'd been a serial entrepreneur. And I thought they created a great app. I used it to try to learn Romanian this last summer for an odd reason. So I look for those kind of fun, interesting uh, cases. And I love to see these founder-led companies, some great product innovation. So some, you know, it's, it's a mix of things I look for. Mark, what do you do with some stories like Twitter? And it went public eight years ago this week at, I think, $26. And right now, as we're talking, it's trading at about $48.5. The NASDAQ is probably up, what, 200% from there, that sort of thing. And this is a product that we use every day, Guy and myself. There's a lot of people who use it in a lot of different verticals, and it's really important to their business, whether it be news and entertainment and sports and obviously finance, that sort of thing. But here's a company that will never have those billion you know, monthly active users that Facebook or Google does for a lot of their products properties, that sort of thing. So how do you value a company like this that really has not made a whole heck of a lot of progress in the eight years that it's been public? And how you think? How do you think about a name like that? Well, that's where you look at those leading metrics, you know, the users and the fact that user growth has been pretty anemic for a good chunk of that period of time. That says something about the value proposition being pretty limited. That's certainly not how the company pitched itself when they went public. And they talked about the interest graph and uh, how they could be, they made a huge mistake. They talked about how they could be just as big as Facebook. Everybody wants to communicate and entertain with friends and family and entertain themselves. So that's why everybody uses Facebook or social media. But Twitter's not that. Twitter is a news junkie site, and that's just a limited core audience. But my guess has always been there are more people who would use Twitter if they just made the thing more intuitive. And, you know, you're a junkie on it, guy's a junkie on it, because, you know, there's just, a, it's great for us who want to just rip through a lot of news, but the average person doesn't necessarily want to do that. And they haven't made it easy for the average person to figure out topics that they would want to follow. So I've always thought about it as a product developmentally challenged company. And if they could solve that, and I don't know why it is, and maybe it's because they've got a CEO's two, two part-time jobs. I don't know. I think that's a reasonable explanation. But they've had product development problems and they've never been able to really expand the use case or the user base. If they can, but that doesn't mean they can't do it in the future. And if they were to do that, there could be a lot of upside in the stock. In the meantime, I'm on the sidelines. You know, one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about lately is just this whole concept of Web3. And you were there, you had a front row seat for Web1 and the transition to Web2. And now here we are, there's this huge focus on kind of decentralized platforms in a while. And, and, you know, a lot of what Facebook has had to talk about with their rebranding to the meta or whatever they're going to be called is really about being less extractive. And that's really the ethos of Web3. Do companies like Twitter, which really, like you just said, have not been able to develop products that can get them to the billion dollar user level, do they run the risk of just kind of going away? And, and I'd throw Snap in there and, 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 and maybe Pinterest in a way too. Or are these companies more likely to end up as, let's say, features or tabs on much larger platforms? And that's the way, the only way they'll really be able to survive. So you mentioned three companies in there, and I spent a fair amount of time contrasting and comparing what happened with Twitter and what happened with Snap. You know, their IPOs, heavily hyped, burn and crash after that. One of them recovered and went to all-time highs as a stock. That was Snap. 
and much quicker than Twitter did, i.e. Snap was a really great outperforming company. And I think the reason is because it was just better a product development than Twitter is. Like markets follow product development because product development drives fundamentals and it drives growth and user base and engagement. So I just, Pinterest, I'm on the sidelines on. We all just lived through the COVID crisis too. A lot of tech re-rated materially during the COVID crisis, but not all of it was justified. And Pinterest is a company that gained like 9 million users in a heartbeat and then they lost them all. Like they couldn't retain them. And so they re- they re-rated and then they de-rated. And they should have because uh, they shouldn't have re-rated in the first place. But I thought, and I made a mistake on this, I thought that they just got a bunch of new customers they would keep for life. That turned out not to be the case. Doesn't mean the can't, stock can't work again. And it may well be set up well for, for next year. But you first need stabilization in that user metric. But, you know, your Twitter snap comparison to me, like one of the key stories, one of the key learnings I've taken from the last 25 years, you know, obviously fundamentals matter. But what drives fundamentals, one of the biggest drivers is the level of success with product innovation. And uh, Snap has had it. And Twitter just is disappointed too many times. It's interesting. You mentioned Pinterest lost all the users. They didn't lose me, brother. I'm still there, long and strong. One of the original Pinterest pages. You know, unless your name is Yastrzemski, Jeter, or DiMaggio, nobody plays their entire career for the same team. And you speak about this and you write about this in your book. Can you talk about that career arc that you've had? Because it's been fascinating. You know, there are no straight lines, quite frankly. And you talk about that in the book. Can you speak to that, Mark? I've been lucky to be at a, a couple of different platforms. And this is a industry where if you feel like you know it, you might you should retire right away because you're going to be dangerous to somebody. And there's always something to learn about these companies. I look, I've looked at this Amazon P&L. The number of times I've looked at an Amazon P&L in the last 25 years, I don't know. They may be in the thousands. And I can still find something different and new in it. And the day I can't uh, is the day that, so that means I'm not the perfect expert, but I don't think such a thing exists. But the day you can't find something new, that's the, that's the day you stop learning. Guy and I and many of our listeners have been learning from you for a very long time. We really appreciate you joining us on the tape. And I hope everyone goes out and reads Nothing But Net. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.